I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord. And uh, this this passage you'll talk about in my sermon, the passage really goes all the way down to verse 41, but I'm just going to read um, the verse, the first 13 verses of, of um, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each of us hear in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts, open our spiritual eyes, that we might behold Christ, Cause us to be transformed into his likeness. Help us through the word preached to respond with faith, worship, and obedience. Grant us confidence in your power to proclaim Christ to others and to regenerate the hearts of the elect that they also might be born again. Regenerate hearts, we pray, even among those who are gathered here this morning. And we ask all of this for Christ's sake, for the glory of his name, and for the advance of his kingdom. For, for we say all these things together before you. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There are many events that secular historians consider to be turning points in world history. We think of, of things like the Bronze Age around 3000 BC and the Iron Age around 1200 BC when humans began using metal tools. We think of the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, the conquering of China by Mongols in the 13th century, the Black Plague in the 14th century, the Industrial Revolution in the middle of the 18th century, the end of World War II on Armistice Day, November the 11th, 1918. We think of September the 1st, 1939, the day that Hitler invaded Poland, sparking World War II or D-Day on June the 6th, 1944, where Allied forces in the largest seaborne invasion in history landed troops and established a beachhead in Normandy. Or we think of August the 6th, 1945, when the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. 
destroying the city and effectively ending World War II and ushering in the nuclear age. These can all of them be identified as turning points in history. And these are the sorts of things that secular historians are going to focus on. Now, as Christians, we are aware of the impact of these events, but our focus is far broader. Our focus is eternal. We know that nation states come and go. We know that technology becomes obsolete. We recognize that that historic events like creation and the flood are not merely historical events, but are far more consequential events. Furthermore, we see the, the ultimate importance of the Christ event. We know that the most impactful events in history are the incarnation of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. And right up there with these events is the event that we're going to be looking at this morning, the day of Pentecost, when Christ gives the Holy Spirit to all believers. Pentecost is closely uh, associated with the, the event that we looked at last time, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. For it is from his place at the, the right hand of God that Christ gives gifts to the church. Christ is the gift giver, as we saw during our studies of the spiritual gifts in, in the lead up to our study of Acts. Christ gives the Holy Spirit to all believers. The Holy Spirit enlivens and empowers the church to fulfill her ministry. He points the church to Christ and helps the church point others to Christ. And so in sending the Holy Spirit, Christ continues to build his church. In fact, in in Acts chapter 2, we we see that, that with the giving of the Holy Spirit, Christ is bringing about the birth of the church. The day of Pentecost is the day that the church is born. Now, there are many parallels between the the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And notably here, the birth of the church parallels the birth of Christ in in Luke chapter 2. Now, this passage, as I mentioned, goes all the way down to Acts 2.41. But I'm going to divide that really this is is really one message in, in three parts. The giving of the Holy Spirit here in verses 1 to 13. The first half of Peter's sermon on Pentecost, where he explains what has taken place in verses 14 to 22. And then the second half of the sermon in, um, in verses 22 to 41, where, where Peter preaches the gospel to those who are gathered and calls them to repentance. So again, three, three, really three sermons, or one sermon in three parts. But today I really want to focus on on two things. In verses 1 to 4, the gathered disciples. And then in verses 5 to 13, the gathered nations. Friends, the gathered disciples and the gathered nations are about to become the gathered church. Luke is revealing that God is faithful to his plan to save a people for himself through his appointed means, his spirit-empowered church. Daryl Bach calls Pentecost a a fulcrum event. You see, everything in in Acts that takes place afterwards and everything in the church really hinges on what takes place here. 
As Ben Witherington explains, for Luke, Pentecost is clearly a critical event which sets in motion all that follows. Without the coming of the Spirit, there'd be no prophecy, no preaching, no mission, no conversions, no worldwide Christian movement. Now, we spent much of the summer looking at spiritual gifts. Well, all of these spiritual gifts that Christ gives to the church come through the power of the Holy Spirit and are therefore grounded in Pentecost. So you can see clearly that Pentecost is one of the, the apocal or one of the most pivotal events in all of history. First of all, verses 1 to 4, the gathered disciples. Back in Acts 1, 4 and 5, Christ had commanded the disciples to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. That just in, in just a few days, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's 10 days later. It's the day of Pentecost, and they're gathered together. Remember, this event only takes place after the, the full complement of, of the 12 apostles has been reestablished. Remember, Judas had, had rejected Jesus, he'd, he'd apostatized and committed suicide. And so the disciples cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias and Matthias became the 12th apostle. Now after this event, as recorded at the end of Acts 1, we, we understand there's a special commission of the, 12 of the apostles to the 12 tribes of Israel as witnesses now and as judges later. The location that this takes place is, is unknown, but it could very well have been the exact same spot where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples and the same spot where he appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. Again, it's the day of Pentecost. This was the, the name for the, the Feast of Weeks, the 50th day after Passover. This is what Pentecost means. Now, in our calendar, it takes place between mid-May and mid-June. So, so 50 days after what, what we would celebrate as, as the first Resurrection Sunday. Pentecost is, is the, the Feast of First Fruits. It's, it's the, the harvest of the, of the wheat when the, the first harvest is, is, is gathered. So, sort of like a, a Jewish Thanksgiving. It was one of the, this was one of the three feasts where, feasts where Jews were required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now that for one, is we're going to see they're, they're, why there are, are so many nationalities gathered. Because they had come as pilgrims to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is also linked with the, the renewal of the covenant that God made with Noah and then with Moses. And in second century, century Judaism, Pentecost was regarded as the day when the law was given on Sinai. Now, interestingly, there's a tradition that the law was initially given in the 70 languages of the world at the time. Even more fascinating are the, are the words of the Jewish philosopher, philosopher Philo about the giving of the law. Now, he wrote this long before Luke. Then from the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven, there sounded forth to their utter amazement a voice. For the flame became articulate speech in the language familiar to the audience. You see the, the, the connection here. This, this, if this is, is really what actually ha happened, this is, this is certainly no coincidence. But then it did happen. Verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound like a mighty rushing 
wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were sitting. Now the word that's translated wind here is the same word that is translated spirit and breath in both Greek and Hebrew. In Greek it's pneuma, and in Hebrew it's ruach. The, the wind is, is often presented as a sign of God's power, God's presence. And this was evident back in the very beginning. Back at Genesis 1-2, when, we, when Moses records that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. It's, the, the word there is ruach. The Spirit hovered over the waters, showing the Spirit's role in the work of creation. Or think of Exodus 14, where the, the Lord drove back the sea with a, a great wind so that the, the sea was parted and the nation of Israel could cross over the Red Sea on dry land. Or think also of 1 Kings 19.11, as before Elijah, there was a, a great and strong wind that, that tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. But I think one of the, the clearest pictures of the power of God that is presented in the Old Testament through the wind is in the, the dry valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, 9 and 10. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Again, it's the same word, rock. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Again, the Holy the Spirit. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is typological of what would happen in regeneration. Just in the chapter just before, we, we have the, the covenant, the, the promise of the new covenant given to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. We very clearly see the picture of this in John 3, where Jesus explains the, the means of salvation to Nicodemus. Verse 8, the wind, pneuma, goes where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus there that you must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think you get the picture. What we're witnessing here is the presence of God and the manifestation and the distribution of his power among the gathered disciples. They were being given power to fulfill the Great Commission and Christ's commission in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Listen to R.C. Sproul. What happened on Pentecost was the rushing pneuma of God. The mighty power of the Holy Spirit came roaring through a room filled with people whom Jesus had selected to be there to receive power from heaven to fulfill their mission in this world. And they heard the wind. This was no ordinary wind. This was the wind of God, a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is the wind that endows you with power to fulfill Christ's commission. Think of, a, of a, a tall ship in a dead calm. It's beautiful to behold, but its sails are slack. 
It's motionless. It's powerless. It can't go anywhere and it can't do anything. But however, when a, a gust of wind comes, all those sails are, are filled with, with air and the, the ship begins to go on its appointed mission. Brothers and sisters, that's us. We have that power. It also makes me think of another thing that we just saw on our family camping trip. As we left the Rocky Mountains and went into southern Alberta, we saw in the foothills of Alberta, first of all, we saw the effect of the wind that, that, that tunneled and channeled through the Rocky Mountains. Massive gusts of wind. And it was, it was kind of fun driving a trailer as it was getting blown around by the wind. But, but all along that region, they, they've, they've erected windmills, hundreds of windmills to generate power. Or to, rather not to generate power, but to, to harness the power that's in the wind. Now again, just think about this. We, you and I are like wind turbines. The power of the Holy Spirit flows in us and through us. We're not just talking about power that's measured in gigawatts or, or not even terawatts. It's a, a trillion watts or, or petawatts. It's a, a, a quadrillion watts. The, the, the total power of the sunlight that hits the earth is about 174 petawatts. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is using the church. Christ is using you to light up the world. But in addition to the wind, there's also fire. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, like the wind, fire is another theophany. It represents God coming in judgment. We know that the Lord is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24. Think of, of God's judgment upon Assyria in Isaiah 10, 16 and 17, for example. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among its stout warriors. Under the glory, a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. But ultimately, of course, when we, we think about the consuming judgment of fire from the Lord, we think of the day of judgment at the return of Christ. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. 2 Peter 3.10 Eternal judgment in the lake of fire is reserved for all of those who reject Jesus Christ. Revelation 20.11-15 May none of us be among that number. I was reminded of, of Michael Jackson and you may, some of you may remember this. In, in 1985, he was filming a, a Pepsi commercial. And as part of that, that commercial, there was pyrotechnics. And in one of the explosions, it sent embers um, onto his head. And his, his hair was actually on fire. But he didn't realize it. Until a, a friend came and, and tackled him to the ground and, and put the fire out. And he ended up having second and, and third degree burns on his scalp. Now, I've only ever had, a, a, only ever had a, a third degree burn once. It was just a small spot on my hand. can't imagine third degree burns on my, on my scalp, let alone over my whole body. 
But this is what will take place for those who are under God's judgment, who refuse to turn away from their sin and put their faith in Christ. They will be burnt up with an an everlasting fire, and we're told that the, the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Now, there's no burn cream in hell. There's no pain-numbing medication. This is the result for all of those who refuse to come to Christ. They will live under God's judgment for all eternity. Under the white-hot agony that's inflicted by God's wrath. Now, in Luke 3.16, another parallel, John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We begin see this beginning to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And in his book on the Holy Spirit, Sinclair Ferguson points out that, that what John the Baptist could not understand clearly was that the fire of which he spoke would fall upon the Messiah himself in the judgment dereliction of the cross. Ferguson continues, Part of the symbolism of the tongues of fire which the disciples saw on the day of Pentecost may well lie in the hint that this is a baptism of gracious rather than destructive power because of the judgment which Christ had vicariously borne in his passion. Friends, in other words, Jesus experienced the baptism of fire on the cross so that his disciples including you and me, would not be incinerated by the fire of the Holy Spirit's coming, let alone by the fire of Christ's second coming. In Luke chapter 12, 49 and 50, Jesus proclaimed, I came to cast fire on the earth. That would it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be accomplished, so I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The fire of judgment would come down on Christ Himself. The tongues of fire of the Holy Spirit that, that came on the, the, the heads of, of the disciples were a testimony that, that the fire of God's judgment was, was not on them. It had been on Christ Himself. For it's on the cross that Christ bore the wrath that you and I deserve. But brothers and sisters, the beginnings of the blessings of our salvation don't stop there. We are not just spared the agony of God's wrath. Fire is also a representation of God's glory. Think of Exodus 3, where where the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Or in Exodus 19, where the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai prior to the giving of the law. He descended in fire to give the Ten Commandments. Or how he went before the nation of Israel throughout the wilderness in a pillar of fire. And the pillar of fire that would come to rest on the tabernacle, which is the precursor to the temple. Numbers 9.15. In 2 Chronicles 7.1, when the temple was completed and was being consecrated as Solomon prayed, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So now think about what takes place here on Pentecost. There are, again, divided tongues of fire resting on each one of them, divided flames. 
each believer is marked by a personal pillar of fire. Derek Thomas points out that the fact that the tongues were divided rather than singular suggests that whereas the presence of God in the Old Covenant was localized in the temple, it was now to be a factor for every believer and to be known and experienced personally. Every believer, he says, will be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, as a Pentecost, all believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit all the time. And not just select people like prophets and kings and not just for a set time for a specific purpose as he would come and go. We're going to talk more about this next week. The fire of the Holy Spirit now rests on you personally. And not just symbolically. The spirit of glory rests on you. First Peter 4.14 The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Brothers and sisters, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. First Corinthians 6.19 Brothers and sisters, again, you are now partakers of the same Spirit. As I explained previously, you are indwelt with a member of the Trinity. You're not just a beholder, but you're a partaker of the glory of God. Well, now we come to verse 4, where the disciples begin speaking in tongues. And this really is where much of the focus uh, um, Pentecost lies in the modern church. However, I hope you can see that while tongues is important, it's really just one part of what was taking place on Pentecost. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Th these men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began proclaiming the mighty works of God. That's down in verse 11. And the people who were gathered heard them speaking in, in their own native languages, as we'll, again we'll discuss in a moment. But as I explained earlier during our studies of the spiritual gifts, th these were clearly earthly languages, not a heavenly language, not an ecstatic utterance. You can see this in verse 6. Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And verse 8. We hear each of us write in his own, we hear each of us in his own native language. In verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The, the, again, these were, were not an angelic language. It was not an ecstatic utterance. These were languages. These were the very languages of the people who were gathered to listen. So these languages enable the disciples to evangelize others again so that each person could hear about the glory of God in their own heart language, in their own native tongue. And here we see another parallel with Luke's gospel account, namely the testimony in Luke 1.15 that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth, and that John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, also being filled with the Holy Spirit and praising God in Luke 1.41 and 67. This is also typified in the Valley of Dry Bones in Exodus 37. The, the breath came into the bones and cause them to come to life so they could stand on their feet. And down in verse, verse 14, 
I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Again, this is a mark of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and, an, and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Dennis Johnson explains that the resurrection that Ezekiel witnesses after the desolation caused um, Israel's unfaithfulness was nothing less than a new creation of the people of God, in which God's Spirit imparted life to the lifeless. And friends, this permanent indwelling of the Spirit is now one of the greatest blessings of our salvation that we enjoy. At the preaching of Peter, immediately after this event, the people are cut to the heart and ask Peter what they should do. And in Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter declares, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. As we sang earlier, we are children of the promise. We are children of the same new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people view that this event of the day of Pentecost as, as paradigmatic, that it reflects what, what happens in the life of a believer, that, that there is a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit after initial conversion. Well, the New Testament knows no such thing. As Ben Witherington explains, while it is certainly true that every individual Christian must have his or own filling by the Spirit in order to be a Christian, his or her own Pentecost, so to speak. This is not what the text is about. In other words, Luke here is not describing the events of a Christian's life. This was in many ways a unique event. However, it does have ramifications for all believers. For all time. In Romans 8, 9, for example, declares, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. There is no one who is legitimately a Christian who has not been filled by the Holy Spirit. And the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not identified with, with ecstatic tongues and other odd manifestations. The filling of the Holy Spirit is identified by the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a believer. So Dennis Johnson summarizes the magnitude of what's taking place here. These signs are echoes of new beginnings in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, displaying the new creation, the new exodus, the new revelation, and the new resurrection that the Holy Spirit initiates in his coming. This is nothing less than the birth of the church. Well, now, more briefly, let's look at the rest of the passage. Verses 5 to 13, the gathered nations. Luke tells us that Jerusalem was populated with devout Jews from every nation. Again, during the Feast of Weeks, during Pentecost, the, the, the city was filled with, with men who were required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Diaspora Jews from, from all over the known world were here. And so Luke here is, is emphasizing the ethnic and geographical diversity of the listeners. The, the point is that this event had an immediate impact on the nations. Something new is happening here. This is the trajectory of Luke now towards a, a global impact that will become increasingly apparent as we'll start to see in Acts 8 and following. 
And evidently, the, the men who are gathered in Jerusalem hear the sound of the rushing wind, and they themselves come rushing to hear what's going on. And when they arrived on the scene, they're bewildered to hear the disciples speaking, not in Aramaic, the common language, not in Hebrew, the language of scholars and scriptures, nor in Greek, the language of the conquering Romans and politicians, but in the languages of those themselves who are gathered here from the nations in their own native languages. Now, some suggest that this was a miracle of hearing, that the miracle was in the ears of those who heard. But, but however, Luke says clearly that disciples began to speak in other tongues. This was a miracle of speech. The Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to praise God in languages that they didn't know. Now, this seems to be a partial reversal of the judgment at Babel. Let's turn back there for a moment to Acts, or sorry, back to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis 10, we, we see the, the table of nations. It's some years now since we, we discussed this, but but there's 70 nations listed here in Genesis 10. And then in Genesis 11, we see that the whole earth had one language in the same words. And so they, they settled here in the, the plain of, of Shinar. And, and in their pride, they wanted to, to make a monument. And so they, they said in, in verse 3, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then so on. And then in verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to heaven to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we disper- be dispersed over the whole earth. So they came together to build a monument to their pride so that they would not be dispersed. But God confounds them in their pride by confounding their languages, by confusing them so they can't talk, they can't work together because they can't understand each other. You just kind of picture them just, just wandering around and just kind of wandering off. So as God dispersed them, then throughout the world. And the name of the city is Babel, which reflects the babbling in the confusion of their languages. But now in Acts 2, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, the judgment begins to be overturned. It's going to continue, in, as I said, in, in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts 10, with, with sort of, of Gentile Pentecost and the salvation of, of Cornelius and his Gentile cohort, cohort. But at this point, here in, in Acts chapter 2, the crowd is bewildered. They're, they're bewildered. They, they recognize that the, those who are speaking are Galileans. This is really a very likely a reflection of, of snobbery and the, the stereotype that, that the Galileans were uneducated. How do, if how do these uneducated men and women know our languages? But they have been educated in Christ's school and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Luke here then in, in Acts 2, 9 to 11, lists his own table of nations. Again, a, a parallel with Genesis 10. There's 15 nations mentioned that there may have been more present. Now, many of these names of, of nations are, are foreign to us, but this is a, as a harbinger of what's to come. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are proclaiming the mighty works of God to the gathered nations, verse 11. And so many of them are going to go out and make disciples of all the nations uh, according to Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses again in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
Again, it's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, to you, commanded you. People from every tribe and tongue and nation are invited and included in the kingdom of God. Friends, woke theology and critical race theory are radically insufficient answers to racism. In fact, they only serve to promote and exacerbate racism. Only Christ can break down the barriers, and it's only through the gospel. This Holy Spirit power, friends, is not just for the disciples. It's for you, too. It's for me as well. This was a signal that Christ was building his church. Fellow saints, Christ is still building his church, and he's doing it through you and me. And once again, we cover this extensively during our, our study of the spiritual gifts, but our charismatic brothers and sisters have often failed to understand the meaning and the significance of Pentecost. Tongues are not the point of Pentecost, especially some form of heavenly language. Again, from Ben Witherington. It is this, the beginning of the, of the creation of God's eschatological people. Properly speaking, is the empowerment, empowering of them to do their job, to witness to Christ. Now, many charismatics give an inordinate amount of attention to the Holy Spirit. However, as Jesus taught in the upper room discourse immediately before the Last Supper in John's Gospel account, but when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 15, 26. And in John 16, 13 and 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and will declare it to you. Graham Cole, in his book about the Holy Spirit entitled He Who Gives Life, points out that there are no pneumatological moments no mention of the work of the Holy Spirit without reference to the Father and the Son. They're all Trinitarian. Even Pentecost is about God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit with the focus on the risen Christ. He says the magnificence, magnificence of the Spirit lies in his self-effacement or divine selflessness. For this reason, believers are rightly called Christians, not Numians. So how do the people respond? How do these gathered nations respond? Verses 12 and 13 shows us at least their initial response. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So again, we see that they're, they're, they're confounded. They have no idea what's really happening. Now it really makes sense. Right? When, you, when you see a, a miracle of, of this magnitude, or really of any magnitude, that you'd be amazed and perplexed. It's, a, it's the right response. Totally understandable in the face of this. But they ask, what does this mean? Well, we're going to have to wait to, until next week to find the answer to that question. I encourage you to, to read ahead on your own verses 14 to 21 to see the answer of what it all means. But there's another response as well. Verse 13. Others mocking said they're filled with new wine. The scoffers conclude that the disciples are drunk. They've got drunk on, on cheap wine, like, like Baby Duck or something like that. But we see here that, that Christ is the dividing line. 
people see what they want to see. We all have the same evidence. All these, these men who were gathered here saw this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. They, they heard of the glory of God. But they rejected God. They mocked. They walked away. And the same is true today. Many of us have experienced the, the times where we've, we've tried to witness to somebody and their, their only response is scoffing. Or even just, probably even worse than scoffing, is just dismissing. They just dismiss you and your message out of hand. But they're not dismissing you. Ultimately, they're dismissing Christ. Again, Christianity is, is not just a, a, a set of, of a theological presuppositions or ideas. Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when people scoff, when they reject Christianity, they're really rejecting Christ himself, as these men did. Now, we'll see what happens next week as, as Peter preaches what's going to happen in, in, in the hearts of these people, but the moment doesn't look good. Christ is the dividing line, and they have chosen the wrong path. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 4, 21 and 22, that tongues are a blessing to those who understand, but they're a curse to those who don't. And these were Jews. These were Jews, as 1 Corinthians 14, 21 says, but it is in the law as written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So in sum, that the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost demonstrates that God is at work, that Christ is continuing to build his church. Again, spoiler warning, but the, the gathered disciples and the gathered nations are about to become the gathered church. God is at work, but some may choose not to recognize it. So they mock, they deny, and they walk away. does not deny the fact or undermine the fact that Christ is at work. He's at work among you. He's at work among me for the glory of his name. And it all started for the believers at Pentecost. Again, from Sproul. Pentecost was a watershed moment in the history of the church. The day of Pentecost was that moment in, in redemptive history when God unlocked the power of the Holy Spirit and gave it to his church, not just for those who were gathered there, but to the church of every age and to every Christian throughout time. That wind, that fire is as much for us today as it was for those gathered in the upper room. We are to be people of the Holy Spirit as well as of the Son and the Father. So because of the Holy Spirit, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For all this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Let's pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, that the Holy Spirit would empower us and equip us to do what that which we could never do on our own. That we could continue to repent and turn away from sin, that we could pro proclaim Christ, that God would pray that God would be pleased to work through our weak words to regenerate the hearts of others, that his church might grow and his glory would abound and his kingdom would be advanced. Let's pray together.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We marvel at all the blessings that we receive in salvation. And we know that salvation is all of you. As you, Father, elected, as Christ came and lived and died and was raised from the grave on the third day, as the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to our lives and continues to sanctify us, to make us more like you, Lord Jesus. Help us, I pray, as children of the promise, as people of the Spirit, but as people also of the Father and the Son. Help us to behold the glory of God. Help us to be transformed increasingly into the glory of God in the way that we believe and the way that we live. Help us, I pray, to have a holy confidence in all of these truths of your scriptures and to live a life that is different because of them, that is different through them. Holy Spirit, please, I pray, point us to Christ, continually point us to Christ and help us to point others to Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.